Hey everyone, welcome to By Our Love Podcast. This is Charlton and Natasha. We are a large Christian family living abroad in East Africa, and we would like to invite you along on our journey of faith, hope, and love. On this podcast, we're going to be discussing our Christian walk, kingdom convictions, discipleship, and church planting, as well as international adoption, the ins and outs of daily life as a family of 12, and inviting on special guests that motivate and inspire us. We hope to be a source of encouragement and challenge the status quo. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of Buy Our Love Podcast. Today, we are here with Brother Finney Curavilla. He has been a very dear friend and mentor of mine for many years, and we are excited that he's here on the podcast, and he's going to just share a bit of his own uh, journey and testimony uh, and what has brought him to where he's at today spiritually and the work that he is doing. He's a part of Followers of the Way there in Boston, Massachusetts with his family. He's also the founder of Sattler College, and we're really excited to have him here with us and to just uh, hear a bit of his testimony and the way that God has worked throughout the years in his life. Uh, Also on the show today, I have Brother Jan as my co-host, so welcome to both of you. Yeah, great. It's really nice to be with both of you, Charlton and Jan. So I was born and raised in Southern California uh, to a very loving home. My parents are immigrants from India. They came from India to the U.S. in 1973. And I I feel like I had a very loving, uh, good Christian home and ended up living in Southern California for the first 20 years of my life and then eventually moved to Boston to go to medical school in 1995 and have never left. So stayed there, did graduate school and residency, ended up starting my own company there and eventually starting Followers of the Way uh, with a couple of other brothers and continue to live in the city till today. So um, really appreciate the introduction. Um, Just Tell us a little bit about your cultural background. Um, so what was it like to, uh, to come from India, come to the States? Uh, what was it like to grow up with the Kuruvillas? You know, just a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. So my parents, when they first came to the States, they lived in, in Minnesota in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And uh, I was myself, though, born in Southern California. Uh, so you can imagine quite a transition for my parents to go from very cold area of Minneapolis to warm, sunny Los Angeles, Pasadena specifically. And it was, frankly, it was an amazing youth that I feel like I had because my, my parents have this very classic, very beautiful rags to riches story, so to speak, as immigrants who had very, very little, almost nothing financially. And just coming with a dream, a hope for a better life in the U.S., certainly for their children, and largely because of God's grace, because of diligence, because of just uh, a passion to, to serve God here 
I got to watch us as a family go from very low level socioeconomically up to, I would say, a, a middle class existence by the time I was in high school. It was, it was always very interesting being ethnically Indian, but living in Southern California. So I went to public schools uh, from age five all the way till I graduated high school. And so I had this unique position of being ethnically Indian and experiencing that world at home. And we would go to lots of Indian functions and prayer meetings and things like that. But I would say the bulk of my life was quite American. And we, we ended up, I would say, eating like Americans in many ways, spending lots of time in American churches. And so I felt like I got the best of, of both worlds uh, from a cultural perspective, from a linguistic perspective. My parents speak a language called Malayalam, uh, which is spoken in the southern part of India called Kerala. And so they would speak to each other and sometimes speak to us in Malayalam. But, of course, we would speak to them generally, uh, almost always, in English. And I, I really appreciate that. And anyone who has a, a multicultural experience, I think that's a tremendous advantage later on in life. And it gives you this, this bridge-building capacity to do what others won't be able to do. There's an individual whose name is Donald McGavran who studied church growth. And he has talked about that almost always, there are exceptions to this, but almost always when people convert, they tend to do so with, with those that they have a high degree of cultural affinity to. So it's very rare that, for example, let's say you're a, uh, a white American, that you would go to a, a Korean church and find yourself to be comfortable there and convert in, in a setting like that. You tend to be much more easily able to to, to make that, that leap of conversion if you are as close in cultural affinity uh, with, with those who are, who are like you. And so, that's for, for better or for worse, that's just human nature. And so I really think that there's a lot of value in those who can leverage that background. Jan, you have a, a similar story with your, your background there. I think it's a tremendous asset that God will, will use later on in life. Could you tell us a little bit about your religious upbringing? Uh, what are some of the churches that you grew up in and around, and what was that like? Yeah, so my my father, from pretty early on, was was a I don't know if I would use the term pastor, but but somewhat like that. He was he was a, he is and 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 was a very capable speaker and preacher, and so he would often speak in American churches. We started off first at a four-square church, which is not a very well-known denomination, but it's a charismatic denomination. We, we lived actually in a parsonage right on the property of a four-square church. It was the very first home that I ever lived in. And uh, I, I always sort of knew these charismatic evangelical churches as my, my primary home. And then my, my father actually would use the phone book, believe it or not, and would just call different churches and say, hey, would you be willing for me to come and speak in your, your church. Ended up connecting with a church in Culver City, West Los Angeles, uh, which is a denomination that's called, it used to be called CEA, Christian Evangelistic Assemblies. Now it's called Grace International. 
and also charismatic evangelical. And so he would go and speak in those places, and we would, of course, go along with him there. And I would say that it was typical for probably what a lot of people experience in terms of an American evangelical slash charismatic experience. Some good things, some very disturbing things as well. And I could see even from a relatively young age, a lot of brokenness there that would be very formative, particularly when I would come to my college years in terms of making an assessment about where I ultimately wanted to to call my my home and call my people. Uh, so so yeah, that was that was a big part of of our youth. When I was eight to ten years old, my father decided he was going to quit his job. Uh, he was working for an organization called World Vision, which is a Christian humanitarian relief and development organization, which I would later work for as well. And he, but he decided he was a manager there, and he decided that he was going to quit his job so that he could go back to India and start a Bible school in North India, which he grew up in South India. North India is a much more unreached area. And so he wanted to go back to North India and, and start that school. So how did that go over when, I mean, it just seems like making that kind of a decision, I'm, a, I'm assuming from his friends and peers and, and other people in the church, like how was that received that he's going back to all of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It was met with a lot of skepticism and even people advising to the contrary. So partly because we had engaged in this many-year struggle financially and and work-wise to finally get into a position of, I would say, relative security with respect to finances. People said, you're going to quit your job at just at the moment that you're finally making it in the U.S. And I remember that a lot of people in particular said that it was foolish because how was how were my parents going to provide funds for college for, I have one brother, for my brother and myself. And so they said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. You should just stay and, and, and continue to work at World Vision. You've got a good job there. And then maybe later on, uh, my father was in his 30s when he made this decision. I will say this to anyone who's, who's listening that this is relevant to. If, if you feel a call and a draw to do something for the sake of the kingdom that is bold and daring and, and you hear this line, oh, for the sake of the children, play it safe, be secure there, you will actually almost always find much greater benefit in going that way of boldness and uncertainty. And I, I, I feel like that was one of the most pivotal experiences in my life growing up was watching my parents by faith embark on this very scary journey. And I feel like much later on, many years later, it would inspire me to make similar steps of faith where you have no idea what's on the other side, but it inspires you in a deep way to, to be courageous for the Lord. Um, would you mind actually sharing a little more about your personal encounters with Christ during that time or subsequently? Yeah, so when my parents were, were doing all that, it was, it was a tremendous faith-building experience because we had very little money, very little resources. My dad just had this dream of this Bible college in North India. And 
a lot of my youth was spent traveling with him, going to different churches as he would speak on this and raise financial support for the idea of this of the school. And God worked tremendously, and I can without any doubt say that God worked miracles in that time period. There's, there's nothing like seeing miracles firsthand. Hopefully, most of us can read and appreciate the stories of the miraculous in the Bible when you read about Moses and and Abraham and Elijah, you know, the, you, you have these amazing stories in the Old Testament and, of course, the New Testament as well, and Acts and the, the Gospels with Jesus, but it can seem remote. And one of the, the questions that I think every child, every adult, needs to, 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 to grapple with is, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the same God that I walk with? And is he still as able, is he still as as powerful as we read in the Bible. Because it's easy sometimes to, to confine that God who is, who is powerful and unconstrained and, and so mysteriously beautiful to, oh, that was back then, but now God is more or less in a box in some quasi-deistic framework. That's a very dangerous trap that I think many of us can fall into. And so I think... All of us need to, to pursue that, that experience where we have an encounter with God in some way. And so for me, here I am in this 10, 10 to early teenage years and got, getting to see firsthand God work miraculously through providing in many, many ways for the Bible school. So that was, that was a very helpful and very formative experience for my own spiritual development. So could you maybe talk a little bit about your your own personal spiritual journey? Uh, talk a little bit about your you know, conversion, uh, when you became a Christian, and kind of that uh, progression over the years, which brought you to kind of where you're at today, because I'm, I'm assuming that um, where you started and the churches you grew up in is, is very different than uh, some of the views that you would hold to today. When I was in high school, I remember there was this one, this one day where I was reading my Bible, and I wasn't a person to normally read the Bible on my own, just of my own free choice. I would read a lot of books. I like science books. I was, I was a, a big reader, but I wouldn't necessarily just pick up the Bible and read it. But for some reason, I decided, uh, it was my senior year of, of high school, that I was going to read the Bible on my own. And I remember there were two chapters in particular that I read. It was John 15, which is the passage about the vine and the branches, and then Romans 8, which concludes with a, a very magnificent expression of, of God's love for us. And I remember reading those two passages, and now here I am, you know, raised in a very loving, good Christian home, but for some reason it hit me then in a very profound way that this was for me, that that I could be a branch on this vine, that God loved me personally, not just generic humanity, but me personally. And I remember almost like this feeling of electricity passing through me. And I was in my bedroom and I remember getting up and jumping around and almost dancing in that room. It was a very precious experience. 
And that was the beginning of this, this hunger for God and this hunger for God's word. And I remember just reading and rereading those chapters again and again and starting to read my Bible more. And it was like just the lights went on and I got it. I would, I would say that was my encounter with God's prevenient grace where he just, he turned, he turned on this, this, awa- this awareness of, of who he is and his love for me personally. And so that began just this, I would say, this relentless love for God's word. So then shortly after, I moved uh, out of the house to go into the dorms. I lived in the dorms all four years in college. And by the time now I'm in early college, I was excited about God. I joined the Christian Fellowship, would continue to read my Bible. And now here I am in a very pluralistic secular college with Jews and Hindus and Muslims and professing Christians. And now you have to ask questions like, what about my belief is more compelling and how would I explain this to other people? And I remember encountering for the first time the field of apologetics, reading a book, this was in 1991, reading a book called Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, which is one of the early classics in apologetics and being very moved by that. So I was baptized my freshman year of college uh, it was right around my 17th birthday. I remember that very well. And it was, it was just this tremendous honeymoon, so to speak. And I also remember, and this is something that I'm very grateful for, which is I, I had a loathing of sin. So I, we were raised watching lots of television, lots of movies, very unhealthy. And that was... Uh, for all of the good things of my youth, that was the, the, the piece which I wish I did not have because it, it corrupts your mind in very deleterious ways. So I remember watching lots and lots of just garbage, just worldly garbage. And when I was in college that, that first year, I decided I'm not going to be watching television anymore. I'm going to be cutting off all these things. And that small but simple and very profound decision, very countercultural for I think for almost anyone in the evangelical world was a channel, a decision channel that God would pour many, many more blessings through that channel. And again, for any, anyone who is, has experienced a, a background like that or is considering the, the, the role of worldly entertainment to the degree that you turn away from the things of the world, particularly with entertainment, and I would refer anyone to Psalm 101, which I still think is one of uh, the most relevant psalms that David gives towards this topic in particular. God will, will give you many, many blessings and multiply grace as a result of those decisions. If we could kind of go in depth a little more, um, just talking about your spiritual journey, um, your views on God, your views on faith, on church, how were they back then, and did they change, and if so, why and how? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. So, so here I am early in college, and I'm excited about God, just baptized, learning apologetics, cutting away, starting to cut away worldly entertainment, although it was not easy, and, and it's something that I think once you, once you get it into your system, it, it becomes a lifelong weakness in many ways. But but at that point, it was, it was something that I began to 
it's almost like the scales fall from your eyes. You know, once you, you detox, so to speak, from that whole world of entertainment, then you can just see the world more clearly. And you can see the spiritual world more clearly. And you can see the bondage that people are in. And so as, as you experience that, then you, you start asking questions like, why isn't this taught more regularly? I've, I've often said that the typical, just regular television, regular entertainment that, that most people consume is really softcore pornography. The way that, that the woman's body is portrayed, the legs, the shapeliness, all that is, it's just softcore pornography. And it's the, it's the feeding of an appetite that's going to, that's going to always want more and more and more. Right? So the fact that we have the tremendous pornography addiction problem that we do globally, but certainly in the U.S., is due to this early introduction of softcore pornography to boys who are three, four, five years old. And so now you begin to see this, and you see this bondage that everyone's in, and it's almost like you're walking around, and you picture people around you in shackles and in this captivity, and you start questioning things more and more. And so I started to, to ask questions of different people around me, different leaders and, and people in the church about like, why do we do these things? Why is it okay that we consume all of this? And then there were a couple of other very pivotal moments that happened in, in college where one was we were studying the, the Gospels and John the Baptist says, you who have two coats... I think is how the NIV puts it, which is what I was raised on, should give to the one who has none. And I remember thinking like, wow, <laughs> my closet is filled with coats, you know, unnecessary garments that I could hardly say that I have any, any meaningful obedience to that. And I, I also worked for World Vision around this time period. And World Vision, for those who don't know, has a, a very tremendous uh, calling to to serve the poorest of the poor in Africa, India, places like that, and to, to give uh, just the basics to those who, who, who need it. So food, clean water, education. And, and here I am working. I was, I was a very low-level employee at World Vision answering the telephones. But I would see these. The, basically, my job was collecting donations. People would watch these, these programs online, uh, not online, on television, with uh, different commercials or telethons, they would call it, and they would call me and say, oh, I want to give $20 a month to support a child in Africa and this whole child sponsorship concept. Beautiful concept. But, but here I am living in very prosperous America thinking I'm just watching program after program because we, we would have the TV screens on at World Vision where we would see the programs that our donors would be watching. And of course, these children just break your heart. I mean, I don't think any human can watch these screens and not have the sense of something is wrong with the world. And then you you check out. I remember we we had the time clocks that we would check out our cards, and you check out, you go back home, and now you're or to the dorm, and you're living this life of excess. And you think this is not right. This is not okay. And and so starting to ask questions like that. And then in First Timothy two, that famous passage where Paul says, "I don't want." Christians, talking to women, but it applies to everyone, to wear gold, pearls, and expensive clothes. And to see that as a, as a social justice issue where we ought to be thinking about, like, 
do all these choices that we're making make sense? And so these, these were very, very profound moments for me where I just had this awakening again, like something is wrong with the world. So here I'm seeing problems in the world with respect to, to our entertainment patterns, problems in the world with regarding our consumption and how we just lavishly spend on ourselves in ways that in no way can square with love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it almost makes a mockery of, of that, that, that command. And so again, like more light bulbs going off, more awakening going off. And, and I remember my senior year, there was a, an older man who was somewhat of an advisor to the campus fellowship. And he gave me a book by Charles Finney. Now, I was named after Charles Finney, but I had never read anything by him, ironically. And so I decided to read this book, it's, it's his Lectures on Revival. And at this point, then, it was the most, the most transformative journey that I think I'd ever experienced at that point, where I read his preaching, and it was like, whoa, who is this person? Because all the things that he was saying were the things that I had been thinking, but in a much more profound way. You know, that someone, I'm paraphrasing a, a, a quote from someone else who says, the most valuable authors to you are those not who give you information you don't know, but who give expression to these very deep feelings that you don't even know how to, to vocalize. And when I read him, I realized that he was was putting into words and action these ideas that had been swirling around in my mind there for for a number of years at that point. And so I moved in 1995 to go to, to Boston to go to medical school, and I took several of his books. Of course, this is the internet is just starting to come out at this point, so it was mostly reading good old-fashioned paper books, and I was just hooked, and I thought, wow, this is the answer. And so I spent many years reading and rereading his books. Then I encountered John Wesley, who in many ways is very similar to Charles Finney and started to read other authors and years later would get into the early church and began to realize that there's always been this, this let's call it remnant or righteous minority that has been preaching this countercultural but much more biblically faithful truth that is, is never been popular, but it's there. And so I started to move more and more and more into that direction. And in, I think it was 2003 or 2004, 2003, I think, I had edited a volume of Charles Finney's sermons. They're difficult to read and hard to get access to the books, and so I wanted to make it more accessible. Uh, I still recommend, if people haven't read it, uh, you, can, you can buy it online, or there's actually a free PDF online. It's called True Christianity. If anyone hasn't read Charles Finney, I highly recommend doing that, and I think you will similarly be impressed by how, on the one hand, you can call it radical, but I think really it's just simply faithful. And I think we, one could almost say that, that to not follow these teachings is just so ludicrous, given how clear the Bible is on all this. And so that whole span of time step by step by step was my journey into what we would now call kingdom Christianity. Um, something we haven't mentioned at all uh, so far, but I think we really need to talk about because it really involves your spiritual journey, and that is maybe meeting and then marrying your current wife. And uh, 
if we could hear a little bit about that, I think uh, we'd all be really interested. Yeah, I love talking about this. So my, I graduated from my 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 programs in 2003, and I was very much wanting to be married, and had various introductions and different dating experiences there. I would say that none of the people that I had interacted with had that passion for being faithful to God, even in these ways that I had mentioned, particularly entertainment and dress and just this, this real love of, of God's word, that passage in Isaiah, those who tremble at God's word, you know, that God, God regards those who trembles already, you know, there's not a lot of people who fit into that category. And so, for very, I'm so thankful to God that he closed many doors, sometimes against my will, uh, to, to be married to one of those, those individuals. But in 2005, I met my wife. Her name is Laura. She was just coming into the Christian Fellowship at Harvard. And I mentioned this passage, the First Timothy 2 passage. It was in a group setting in uh, one of the InterVarsity Bible studies. And I mentioned it, and she, without me having to badger her or go after her, just got rid of all of her jewelry. And she's from a a fairly well-off background. And so uh, she had the means and had a very fancy wardrobe, et cetera, but got rid of her jewelry and just started to change her life very dramatically. And this is one of the other qualities that you want to see in, I think, a true, as a distinguishing mark of a true Christian is that they don't need to be moved with a boulder. It just uh, the, the lightest touch of, of God and the, almost like a feather will move them because they're, they're listening in, to God's spirit. And so that was very encouraging to watch her obedience, that simple childlike obedience. And so we, uh, we were engaged just six months after we met in December of 2005, got married. 2006. And, and one of the, it's just, I thank God so often, uh, nearly daily for my wife, because she is so sensitive to the things of God and, and keeps me, and I think we both push each other regarding our just faithful, faithfulness and devotion to God there. And what a blessing it is to have someone like that as your, your help meet, as your your, your life partner. I've seen so many times, I'm sure many of us could attest to this, people who had lots of promise, but then marry the wrong individual, and it just destroys your ability to move forward in the ways that God is calling. So yeah, very, very thankful for that. And Laura, even later on, would challenge me uh, with, with her own reading of scripture. She would read First Corinthians 11 on her own, and later put on the head covering all alone. There was nobody else in our church who was doing it. And, and I just, I'm so grateful for someone who is such a, uh, a challenge to me as well. I think there's a lot of mutual respect. I know there's a lot of mutual respect that we have for each other in our marriage, which is just a tremendous blessing. You had mentioned Charles Finney and others who were inspirational to you throughout your journey. If you had to recommend two books to our listeners uh, as to something that you think would inspire or be instrumental along their journey, especially as they're 
potentially asking questions and wrestling through things, what two books would you recommend? Yeah. So I would say that first one is the one I mentioned before, True Christianity by Charles Finney. I, I came into a lot of my convictions through the, the, the writers of the Great Awakenings. So I would say the main two would be Charles Finney and John Wesley, but read Edwards and Whitfield and others that I have a little bit less affinity with, with them, more, much more with Charles Finney and John Wesley. But that True Christianity book, as I said, you can get it online or it's free. It's free as a PDF or if you want a paperback, you can get it on Amazon. I think that's an excellent, excellent book that I would recommend. The second book is, is the one that I wrote because I've tried to put together everything that I have gone through there, and which is a much more ambitious enterprise, maybe too ambitious, where I tried to encompass not just implications on personal holiness, but also on corporate structure and holiness, i.e. the church. One of the, the big lessons that I learned in, I would say, the, the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, was I tried in, in, in a very feeble way to be a little Charles Finney and to go and preach and to go and share different messages on personal holiness and, and what does it mean to repent and believe, basically. And I would find a, a decent reception. Usually I wouldn't get invited back to most places, but, but decent reception in the sense that there would be a small number of individuals that would say, like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've always had the same feeling in my heart, too, that something is wrong in the church. You know, there's, there's usually in most places a minority of people that they're there, but their hearts are, are torn, and they see that there's something that's not quite right. And so I, these people come to me and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we want to follow uh, the, the Bible more fully. We want to repent deeply. We want to walk the, the narrow way that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. But then you come back six months, one year, two years later, and they're just like they were before. It's very hard for anyone to escape the gravitational pull of the group that they're in. That's just human nature. We are going to become creatures of our uh, of the, the the people that were around, you know, there's many verses in the Bible that talk about the effect of the companions that you keep, and so so these these larger structural questions about the nature of the church are so important to, to ask and answer, and so in my book, which is called King Jesus Claims His Church, uh, which I'm hoping to to uh, make a revision of at some point in the next year or two. Uh, would be to uh, to try to synthesize what is the relationship of God's call on us individually with God's call on us corporately. So those would be my my two recommendations. What is prayer to you, and um, what form of prayer do you find most appealing? Yeah, so prayer is something that if you had to say what is the differentiator between the greats of God. I mean, the people who just have made tremendous impact, whether it's John Wesley or Charles Finney or George Mueller or Adoniram Judson or John Hyde. I'm citing more examples in the last couple hundred years. I don't think anyone would dispute that their differentiator was a serious commitment and devotion to prayer. And I I take that challenge very much to heart. I would say that prayer has not, for me, been my natural strength. Uh, my natural strength has been more of a 
student of the word and someone who likes to dig in and use my mind as opposed to just say a, a, a pure prayer. Now, I'm not saying you don't use your mind in prayer, but, uh, but what I have found is that, uh, and I feel like the last couple of years in particular, I've made tremendous progress in my own prayer life using something that I think I gave a message on that here. I did give a message on this here in, in Kampala a few years ago that is has now become for me a very precious way to pray, which is that the, one of the best ways that we can pray is by using the Word of God in our prayer. And we should be, uh, there's a, a great analogy that, that someone gave that has, has, never, has never left my mind, which is thought experiment. Imagine you get to talk to anyone in all of history. You get to pick any person in all of history, and you get to have a one-hour conversation with that individual. You can talk to Paul or Moses, you, know, you name it, anybody you want. And, and let's assume there's no language barrier. That's all taken care of. And so you get to have an hour conversation. We would all be just thrilled for that opportunity. Okay, so you have that. And then the next day, the person says, guess what? You get to talk to this person again. And you're all excited. But then they say, you know what? You have to use the exact same words in that conversation that you used on the first day. And you would think, that's weird. And you might go through it. But it would be a very painful, laborious exercise to use the same words with that person, even though they might be an amazing human being. And then they said, okay, you can do it again on day three, but you got to use the same words. And after a while, it would seem like torture or something. Like, I, I, I don't know what, this is not a meaningful experience to just be using the same words again and again, no matter who the person is. And I think for many people, that's what prayer has become, is they, as it's been said, they pray the same old things about the same old things. And they're saying the same words. It's it's not really anything like the personal dimension to conversation that we have we had last night, for example. And it's hard to believe that the God of the universe who wants us to be in meaningful relationship with him would make prayer to be this terrible drudgery, this very laborious, painful experience. And so there's a, a very different model of prayer of praying that people like George Mueller and many others used, which is you you pray the scriptures. And I'm not sure where this message is online. I know it is somewhere online where I've summarized this. But in a nutshell, what you do is you 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 read one verse of the Bible. So if you take Psalm 1 as an example, it works very, very well in the Psalms, the epistles, the gospels. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, okay? So then what you would do is you would say, Father, I thank you that you have shown us the truth. Uh, I thank you that you have given us your, your word and that you've shown us these, these three paths of error. Uh, forgive me. So you can take this prayer in many directions, thanksgiving, petition, forgiveness, confession, intercession. So you can say, hey, forgive me, Father, for the times that I've scoffed and that I have been uh, among those who, who mock things that, that we should not be mocking. Please, please forgive me for that. You can pray for your children. Father, I pray for my, my own children that they would not be among the, the company of, of those who are ungodly. Uh, you can 
to again, confession, praying for, for people around you. Uh, you could say, Hey father, uh, I, I, I bless you. And, and I thank you that the perfect one to live that out was Jesus himself. That when he's, when we read this verse, blessed is the man who walks not the, the true fulfillment of that is found in Jesus himself. And you could easily spend, you can try it, uh, five minutes just on that one verse and then you read verse two and it's almost like God is speaking to you on verse two uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night and so you could say hey God I want to uh, be a person who in distinction uh, to those who walk in the way of scoffers I want to be delighting in your in your word day and night and hey night is a difficult time for me night is a time where my thoughts don't go in good places. Would you help me to do that? Uh, thank you that you've given us your word, which has delight. Thank you. I want to pray that for those who don't have your word, I want to pray for Bible translators that I know are in India. Right? You can go in so many directions there, and it, it adds a vibrancy to your prayer life that most people haven't experienced. And I will also throw in this little tip. If you, for those who are married, to do it with your spouse at the end of the day and to say, would you uh, pray with this with me? You will bond and connect with your spouse in very profound ways. So I want to ask now, uh, from your perspective, what has the reception been? You've had a lot of connection throughout the mainstream evangelical world. Uh, you've done a lot of work for many years uh, in InterVarsity. And obviously, the, the point where you're at in your faith and practice is very different than uh, a lot of the, the mainstream Christian world around, uh, what has been the reception and scholarship and others that you have connection with over the years? In general, it's it's been not surprisingly mixed. So I, I've had so many opportunities to, to speak publicly, one-on-one conversations, you name it, on these matters about what does it mean to repent and believe, to to to, to seek not to save our, our lives, but to lose it. And there's, there's usually a small percentage that responds very favorably. But what you have to remember, and I think what all of us have to remember, is that the majority in general are not interested. Once in a while, you'll get outright scoffing and, and mocking. But most of the time, it's just like, whoa, this is weird. And you're, you're too extreme and strange and all that. But that's okay. And... I think we need to, if anything, remember that Jesus told us it would be so, that, that the, the way that most people follow, it's a broad path. It's easy. It's not very challenging. I often say that in the American evangelical churches, the particular way that you live, the actual day-to-day life, it's not any different than it is for a Jew or a Muslim or... A, even someone who is going to the local YMCA, the level of morality, it, it's just not that different. And what we have successfully, tragically done is eliminated the, the distinctive Christian teachings that are, are the hard teachings of Jesus and the hard teachings of the New Testament. It's a terrible tragedy. And we've been so programmed, really brainwashed, to believe that anything that is different from status quo is wrong, even before you even consider it, it's wrong. And so there's this funny 
paradox that we live in where if you go to, say, an evangelical church and you say, I, wanna, I want us to live counterculturally, you'll get people, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I want us to be, be people who live different from the world. Yeah, they'll clap and cheer and all that. But then the moment you mention anything specific, it's like, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, talking about like, hey, let's forsake anything that is, is tangible, well, no, no, we can't do that. And suddenly it becomes legalism and you become a Pharisee and all that. And so we, we just live in this world where all these platitudes and cliches are thrown around, but they have no substance to them at all. And, and that's the differentiator between, I think, those who are truly on the narrow way, where it's not just theory and nice slogans, but it's, it's actually living a life of, of sacrifice and devotion to God. So hey, it's okay, and you have to have a thick skin. You have to be willing to, to listen to critics who are going to call you not very nice things, and you have to be willing to be rejected. You can, I, mean, I feel like there's been so many times I've just poured out my heart and soul in front of a person or a group of people, and you think, like, surely there's going to be lots of people who respond, and it goes over like a lead balloon, and you got to be willing to, to just bear with that. So again, I think these are these are commonalities and similarities that we can we can take with Jesus. I, I'm often amazed. How is it that the perfect Son of God, who eclipsed us in every conceivable way, who could do miracles, who could raise the dead, who could who could heal the blind, who preached better than any of us, how in Jerusalem, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, when all was said and done, there was 120 people who were in the upper room who were following. I mean, how is that possible? How is it possible that, that someone as great as him had so small of a following? I mean, it hardly, it's hardly comprehensible. The, I often point out the Apostle Paul, when he is writing to the, Rome, the church at Rome, he's in Corinth at the time, and he notes that the whole church at Corinth fits in one person's house. Uh, uh, and this is in Romans 15 or 16 where that's mentioned. And you think, wow, this is miracle-working Apostle Paul who spent more than a year and a half, almost two years in Corinth, and he, he's got a church that fits in one living room, in one house. How is this possible? But it just is, right? And this is what exactly what Jesus meant by that narrow road. So, yeah, it's, it's been mixed, and uh, I'm, I'm always— it makes it all the sweeter when you get someone who responds and who is willing to live that life of devotion to the Lord, and I feel like your hearts will be knit together— all the more profoundly. So uh, just a final question, Brother Finney. Thinking about the return of Christ and that moment when you see him for the first time face to face, what will you say to him? It's a, it's a very chilling question. Very, uh, it's one of those questions that I almost get goosebumps thinking about what that moment will be like. And... I, I, I suppose that my, my first answer is not what will I say to him, but will he say to me? Uh, and I would, I would hope that all of us would be just so awed in that moment that we would be listening more than talking and that we would be, hopefully, Lord willing, all of us would be able to hear that well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of your Lord. And, uh, and so to, to hear those words from Jesus himself 
I mean, what what could come close to anything, any joy, any happiness that we've heard on experienced on this earth? What could come close to that? To hear those words. Uh, so, I think for me it would be more listening. And there's a there's a, a a painting that I remember seeing years ago from from Randy Alcorn. It's in one of his books where it's someone who almost just collapses into Jesus's arms and just enjoys that embrace. I think for me, that would be the most sweet experience would be to almost enjoy and embrace and to just weep. And I mean, of course, filled with so many questions and uh, filled with such incredible longing for family members and so many others to experience that joy too. Uh, so uh, in terms of what to say, you know, it's, it's hard to know. And I, I just think I'll be speechless. I'm speechless now, even thinking about, about what that moment will be like. And I'm eager to, to hear what, what Jesus would say in that moment. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Um, one of the things that we want to do is bring on people that motivate and inspire us. And, and I can say that over the last several years, you're definitely someone that has played a key role in my own journey and has not only motivated but inspired myself and Natasha and, and many other people. And um, all that is to, to be pointed back to God, you know, and the work that he's, he's done in your life. And I think you, you are someone that has <clears throat> taken, um, the opportunities that have been provided to you and the resources that you have, and you, you try to channel all of that, uh, for the kingdom of God. And I know I've, I've seen that in your life as far as looking at someone who really practices the things that they preach, um, it, it, that's a, a beautiful testimony to the work that God has done in and through you, Brother Finney. And so thank you so much for joining us today and uh, coming on. Do you have any last words? Well, I was going to say thanks to you, Brother Charlton and Brother Jan. I'm similarly inspired by the work that you both are doing here in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, I'm very excited for what God is doing here and believe that that we are just beginning what will hopefully be something very great, a revival that will happen in our, in our day where many people come to know, come to know Jesus uh, in, an, in an authentic biblical way. And I know everyone here is working very diligently for that. So let's keep laboring together until we have that experience where we can see Jesus face to face. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode. If you would like to connect with us, you can do so at byourlovepodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, ideas for future episodes, uh, you can also connect with us on Instagram at podcast by our love. Have a good day.